1 Corinthians chapter 10, we are going to finish up this section, which really began in chapter 8. Paul says, I'm going to talk to you concerning idols and things sacrificed to idols. And he begins kind of addressing that issue on a number of different levels, particularly beginning with their emphasis of knowledge over love and then showing them that the surrendering of their rights would be a part of loving one another, not just knowing an idol is fake and that things are okay to eat. We had to still be aware of their Christian brothers and sisters and their testimony around them. Paul then showed how he was an example of that to them and encouraged them to run the race that God had given them well individually And then in chapter 10, where we just looked, he showed how in the Old Testament, those Israelites that were following the Lord were given incredible spiritual privileges, but God was not well pleased with most of them. And then showed how evil desires can get into our lives and in all these different ways, whether through idolatry or sexual immorality or complaining or testing God The enemy can get in and ruin the things that God is doing, and they can't just take it for granted or have self-confidence and play around with temptation, verses 12 and 13. Then we come to 14. Therefore, because of these things, my beloved, flee from idolatry. These examples that I just have just given you should have led the Corinthians to realize the foolishness of their self-confidence in the face of the temptations that accompanied these idolatrous feasts in the pagan temples of their day. So per their situation, Paul now just gives them a pretty direct command. No, flee from idolatry. You, you, sh- you can't go to these idolatrous feasts at these pagan temples with impunity as if it's not going to affect you somehow. And he gives them this command. Notice I think it's important. He says, therefore, my beloved, because he loves them. Because he doesn't want to see the people in this church in the scenario that these Old Testament Israelites were examples of. He wanted to see them finishing their race like the guy who won the race and who would be rewarded for that, not disqualified. And so he knows he's speaking to people, hopefully that understand his heart. And he says in 15, I speak as to wise men. Judge for yourselves what I say. The idea is sensible people. Um, I'm talking to sensible people here. So consider what I'm proposing to you. He's going to go into some further reasoning here as to why they should heed his command to flee from idolatry. Don't mess with it. Don't just say, I know the idol's fake. It's nothing So I can be here and it's not a big deal. He tells them to flee. And he's going to he's going to build a kind of larger reasoning here. So let's read down a little bit. Verse 16. He says, the cup of blessing which we bless. Is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break. Is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, though many, are one bread and one body. For we all partake of that one bread. Observe Israel after the flesh. Are not those who eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? What am I saying then? That an idol is anything? Or what is offered to idols is anything? 
Rather that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. That's, that's a nice statement, right? Everybody should basically agree with that. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and the table of demons. I'll pause there. So his reasoning here is really kind of simple. I'll just run it off first and then we'll go back. And he says in the New Testament communion service, the one who partakes of that has fellowship with Christ and his people. He said in the Old Testament sacrificial system, if you went and you're a part of the worship in the tabernacle or the temple and you partook of what was offered on that altar, you are a partaker of fellowship with Jehovah and his people. And then he says, in like manner, if you go to the pagan temple and you participate in what's happening there, you are a partaker of those worshiping demonic spiritual beings and the people. So it's very simple reasoning here. That's why he says, look, any sensible person can see this and understand this. The point being, you can't say one is true and the other is not true, which is one of the deceiving things about sin that Satan likes to throw out there as if something that has a very positive effect on us that everyone would acknowledge. I think this church would acknowledge, yes, when we take communion, we have fellowship with the Lord. And then they would acknowledge, yeah, the Old Testament, Israel after the flesh. Paul understood that the people who were a part of that system were partaking in worship to Jehovah and his people. Well, then you can't say if we go do the same thing somewhere else, we're not a part of what's happening there. It's a very simple reasoning he wants to put forward. But the enemy always wants to make us think that the evil kind of part or influence to things really doesn't affect us. But if we say the good part of things affects us, well, then we have to also acknowledge the evil part of those things affect us. We, we do this in our realm with a lot of other things. You know, I could go watch a movie and the evil things in the movie don't affect me, but the good things in the movie do. People will say, this movie was so good. It was a great influence. It was or this book or this music or this. But I can't acknowledge that things like art or literature entertainment has positive value without also acknowledging it has negative value. And I'm submitting myself to the influence of those things. If the one is true, well, the other is also true. And in this scenario, Paul is putting this forward for them to have to acknowledge. Again, he starts with communion, which they would agree with verse 16. We'll go back a little bit. The cup of blessing which we bless, and the cup of blessing was a term for the final blessing offered at the end of a meal. Is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? And communion, there's the word koinonia. It's the same all the way back in chapter 1, verse 9, where he said, we have fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. We have communion. We're partakers. We've tied our lives together with him. We're a participant in his life. We're sharers in what it is that he's doing and what it is that he's accomplished. And he says, the cup of blessing we, which we take, we have communion with Christ in that. And the same, the bread which we break. Is it not the communion of the body of Christ? We're remembering Christ's work on our behalf. 
were giving him thanks because of that work. Every Christian there that communes with Christ also communes with the rest of the family of God because of Christ. That's why he says, we then that are many are one bread and one body. He says, you, everybody acknowledges what's happening here. Those, the, if we have a communion service here, we're all connected to one another through the work of Christ. We only have that connection because of the work of Christ. And we have communion with him. Again, this is not, Paul here is not uh, necessarily doing a direct teaching on communion. He's using this as an example. In our coming in communion, our focus is Christ and not just the religious act. We, we have real communion with the Lord in that, in remembering him and his work on our behalf. Christ isn't some, some, it becomes religious when we think more about the act than Jesus Christ, as if Jesus Christ is in heaven. Be like, like, just drink the cup, just drink the cup. Okay, now you're done. And then he's done with our communion. No, it's a life fellowship. I realize that I'm a partaker, continual participant in your life and fellowship and kingdom. And that happened at the cross. And Christians everywhere, even though there's a lot of different thoughts about those things, how it works out or whatever, they all participate in that because of the communion of Christ. So Paul is saying here very clearly, we all agree this is what happens in communion. Interestingly, here in those verses, 16 and 17, I believe it's the only time in the Bible that the order is actually flipped. The normal process of communion is the bread first and then the cup second. Um, I think, again, Paul is not giving a direct teaching on communion and its meaning here. He's going to do that a little bit later. What he's doing is he's using this as a mode of reasoning with them. So I believe to address their moral condition, he's pressing the blood of Christ first. He, He wants to get them to that, almost the more vertical aspect, and then the body of Christ relating more to, as he says, the body as a whole. Because, again, what greater motive does a Christian have to faithfulness and to holiness than the blood of Jesus Christ? These Corinthians were idolaters before the blood of Jesus Christ. And now that they're saved and they're washed, they are no longer idolaters. They should be very different than what they are making themselves willing participants in. So I believe Paul wants to bring that emphasis first, and that's why he flips things here. Then he moves again to 18. He says, Observe Israel after the flesh. Are not those who eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar, the Again, Jewish sacrificial system, you would go. You couldn't just be anybody and show up at the tabernacle or the temple and give an offering. You were saying something when you showed up there. And you would enter into the life of the Jewish people to be a part of that. And you would also willingly fellowship with the God of that altar, Jehovah, who they knew. Deuteronomy 12:18 says this, but you must eat them before the Lord your God in the place which your Lord your God chooses, you and your son and your daughter and your male servant and your female servant, the Levite who is within your gates, 
and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God in all to which you put your hands. The Israelite knew they would offer part of that offering. The priests would get a part, the Lord would get a part, and they would get a part back. And then they would sit down and eat that as a family or those that were with them. And they did that, as Deuteronomy said, literally before the Lord. It was an acknowledgement. The sacrificial system wasn't just, hey, we give this and go. There was an acknowledgement of the Lord is here and a part of this. And I am also receiving provision from him. So what Paul says was something very clear. They would get this. Okay, it hap happens in the New Testament era. In the Old Testament, that was pictured the same thing. And so when he takes the next step, it should be very reasonable for them. So in 19, he says, what am I saying then? That the idol is anything or what is offered to idols is anything? He says, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying the idol is real or what is on their altars is special. Verse 20, rather that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and the table of demons. Now, Paul says, look, I don't want you to misunderstand me. Earlier, I said that, yes, there is no reality to these man-made gods. All the gods that are made up by human beings, there is nothing there. That God does not exist. Any spiritual power behind those things, Paul says, is demonic. So, I'm not changing what I said here, but what he says is those who are worshiping these false gods are worshiping the demonic supernatural powers behind those gods. That Zeus is not there, but if anything's there at all, it's some false supernatural power. That's what's there. That's what they're participating with. So whatever the God's name is, human beings have made up. He says, behind that, just because Zeus is not there does not mean nothing is there. There's still something there, and I don't want you fellowshipping with that thing. It's not a question of intent here. I think this is important to recognize. The unsaved world of the day did not intend to worship Satan or demons when they worshiped Zeus. But they did in reality. That's important for believers to know. The supernatural realm is not something that we can ignore. Our worlds, both natural and supernatural, are connected, whether people believe it or not, or whether people like it or not. And as Christians who have that knowledge, Paul says, you guys should understand this. So just like, again, you take communion, you fellowship with the Lord, you went to that altar in the temple or the tabernacle, you were fellowshipping with the Lord and his people, you go to this pagan temple and you participate in their sacrifices so that you can eat with your friends, just because you say Zeus doesn't exist, there's still something there. And you're making yourself a participant of that. And there's a whole bunch of temptation that's also involved in that. And he wants them to understand that their actions have consequences. He says, I don't want you to have fellowship with demons. It's a funny sentence, but it's true. <laughs> that's Paul's whole point. Like, I don't want you in that position, in a participation, a willing participation where there's demonic supernatural things happening. 
So he puts this in front of them saying, you have to think about your actions. Again, there's plenty of intent that people might have in scenarios. But actions still have consequences. Most people do not intend to be a drunk driver or intend to become an alcoholic or intend to become a serious addict. People don't intend to go a lot of different directions, but your actions still have consequences despite our intents. And these people might not have intended to be fellowshipping with demons or putting themselves in this position, but Paul's saying, this is what you're doing. You understand this? So he says very clearly in the next verse, you cannot, 21, drink of the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and the table of demons. What he's saying is, it's not that they couldn't physically do that. It seems like they already were doing that. His point is, you can't do that and be consistent or have no consequence. It's conflicting. If I understand what's really happening there and what's really happening in my Christian life, these two things are in total conflict. Light and darkness can't have fellowship here. The reality is we're fellowshipping with one or the other because they're incompatible. I can't be a participant and claim to not be a participant. Something is wrong. I can't claim to be an Eagles fan and attend all the Dallas games that happen next year and be like, I'm not a participant. I, I am saying something by my actual actions. That's a joke. You know, sadly, that you move that into a marriage covenant, which is where God always takes idolatry in the Old Testament. I can't participate in some relationship with somebody else and say I'm in a safe covenant with somebody else. <laughs> Those two things are conflicting. That's the whole point. And Paul is saying, no, no, I can't partake of one cup and the other cup and say, nothing's happening, it's okay. I have to realize that those two things are incompatible. And Paul sees their presence at these idolatrous feasts as reckless self-confidence and a lack of true spiritual understanding. Just because an idol is nothing doesn't mean nothing is happening. The idol may be nothing, but love to brethren, temptation, and fellowship with God are something. And Paul's saying, all those things are on the line. If you think that you can just go to these pagan feasts and it doesn't matter. There's a problem here. You guys have to see this. You're sensible people. Understand it. And he's going to bring in here in verse 22 the character of the Lord to really finish off this dangerous attitude. He says, or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy are we stronger than he? Paul wants to remind them about God's character, and God is not cool with the participation at idolatrous feasts. <laughs> he never was in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 4.24 says, For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Deuteronomy 32.21 says, They have provoked me to jealousy by what is not God. They have moved me to anger by their foolish idols. Psalm seventy-eight fifty-eight says, They provoked him to anger with their high places 
and they moved him to jealousy with their carved images. They were claiming to be God's people and then the whole time participating with these other gods. And God says, you're provoking me to jealousy, to a certain type of character movement. And most of the time in our culture, jealousy is a wrong thing. But for God to be a jealous God, as he claims that he is, is not wrong because God actually knows that he is the best thing in our hearts and lives. Human beings sometimes are not actually the best thing in somebody else's life. God actually is the best thing in our hearts and lives, and we should, in fact, want him to be jealous. And he is not satisfied to watch those he cares about destroy themselves outside of him. So when he steps in as a jealous God, it's to preserve what he can from those who are hurting themselves by moving away from him. And we should want him to be jealous over us. He doesn't do it in the wrong way. He knows what is actually best for us, and that's him. And he knows how to do it in the way that is best for us. But what Paul says is, you don't want to provoke God to have to act in that character toward you in a way where he has to step in and he challenges them. Are we stronger than he? I think his point there is, you know, God is not an active participant at both tables. Do we think, ah, it's not going to affect me. I'm cool. Well, if the Holy Spirit's not cool going there, we probably shouldn't be cool going there either. Do we think we're stronger than him or wiser than him? What are we saying that we can put ourselves in these situations? Christ's blood was not shed so that the Corinthians could flippantly flirt with other gods. Paul's like, you got to understand this, especially those they probably once worshipped and served. Most of these believers were probably pagan people who served other gods before. And to step back into that scenario and act like it didn't really matter, Paul has just built this case to finally say, look, guys, it matters because you should care about other believers and how they see that, and you should be more loving toward them than just insistent on your own knowledge. It also matters because you're putting yourself in a place of temptation, and it's pretty foolish to throw yourself there when you should, in fact, be fleeing from idolatry. And it also matters because you're making yourself a willing participant in things that do not have God's spirit behind them. They have a total different spirit behind it. So he says, beloved, flee from idolatry. You're sensible people. You should get what I'm saying here. Don't provoke God to jealousy. I, I believe that's a playoff of what he's already said earlier. He already gave all these Old Testament passages in there. Anybody familiar with the Old Testament, their mind would go right back there and know what God's people did. And it's always in context of them giving themselves over to other gods. So Paul is going to now expand on this a little bit in verse 23 and 24 and pull in some of what he said earlier in the letter. Verse 23, 
All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. Paul here returns to some of the earlier reasonings again about their rights or liberties as Christians. And again, Paul has established we have rights and liberties as Christians. He he talked about some of his own and being supported and what he can eat and how he interacted with people. But what he says here is this still have to be bordered. Just because we have rights and liberties as Christians doesn't mean we can use them however we want or that there's no line for those now. And he gives basically two borders, right? These are the bumpers in the bowling lane to help them stay in the right spot, okay? So he says, the first thing is, I don't have the right to participate in any action that wounds myself or other people. It's pretty clear. <laughs> if, if I think I have a right to something, but it's in fact something that would wound another brother or sister in Christ, or would not be edifying for me as an individual, for me or anybody else, I don't actually have the right to that thing. I can't do that thing then and still be pleasing to God. It's very much an application of the great commandment, which is to love God first with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then love others as ourselves. We are supposed to be God-conscious first, others conscious second, and self-conscious third. Now we know where that goes. Let's flip around in our lives because of sin. We are self-conscious first, others conscious second, but we're usually others conscious in a negative fashion where we have our group of people that we want their opinion to be good of us. And so we live within the other's consciousness. And then God-conscious last. And what Paul is saying is Christian life isn't like that because it's Christ's life. And he's not like that. He's the most free being in the universe. But everything he does is edifying. And it's actually the best for everybody else. And so, do I have rights and liberty? All things are lawful for me. But I understand all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. I can eat bacon, but it's not always helpful for me to eat bacon. Particularly as a guy trying to give the gospel to Jews. He knew that. So am I gonna am I just gonna step in and live out my rights? Is that is that why Jesus Christ saved me? Because now I have rights to use however. No. That's that's not what it is. I can't use them in a way that won't either edify me or those around me. Those become kind of my lanes by which how I measure out things in life that the Bible doesn't speak about clearly. My rights or liberties I have as a Christian, I have to always keep them measured within those two lines. Now in 25, what he wants to do is he wants to kind of give them a nice practical example of all this. I actually believe that uh, Paul did this very often and probably even did this in Corinth. Remember, he shows up in that city. There are no, there's not Christians there that are necessarily 
uh, in a whole thriving church already. He's starting it all from the ground up. So what he does is he kind of lays out a scenario. Verse 25, he says, towards the end of this conversation, to sum it all up, eat whatever is sold in the meat market, asking no questions for conscience sake, for the earth is the Lord's and all of its fullness. So he says, let me give you a test case. So when you go to the market, buy what you want to eat and don't worry about it. Don't think about it. Don't think about whether it was offered to Zeus or whatever. Go to the grocery store and have a clean conscience. And most of us don't go to Acme and wonder, I wonder if this meat was given to Zeus, okay? But you can go into the store and you can know, look, he's quotes from Psalm 24.1. It was a common saying that Jews had before eating. The earth is the Lord's. It's full of his goodness, his fullness. He's given it to us. I can rejoice and I can eat it. All the food I see at the grocery store is God's, not the devil's. The devil hasn't made any food. He has created nothing. Right? All he can do is twist the good things that God has. I can go there and I can have a clean conscience. I can eat that meat and be glad. So, okay, do I, can I go to the market? Right? This is, okay, you tell me I can't go to the temple, but can I go to the market? Are you saying I can't go to the market now? Right? You know people are going to have these questions. So he's playing this out. Go to the market, buy what you want, eat it, and be glad. Now, he's going to add on to that. If any of those who do not believe invite you to a dinner and you desire to go, eat whatever is set before you, asking no question for conscience sake. But if anyone says to you this was offered to idols, do not eat it for the sake of the one who told you and for conscience sake. For the earth is the Lord's and all of its fullness. So now Paul's going to lay out a different scenario. So you're in the city and an unsaved person, non-believer, invites you over to their house. He says, if you want to go, go. This is a great verse here. I'm sure Paul literally had to do this many times. Again, he went in the cities. People weren't believers. They heard Paul share. Hey, we want to we know more about what you said about this Jesus Christ. Come to our house. Paul would go. And he says, whatever they put in front of you, you just eat it. It's okay. They give you something, eat it. You don't have to worry about it. And I, I'm sure that people in Corinth can remember, oh yeah, Paul did that. <laughs> he was probably at their house. They'd seen him do these things. He had to do this plenty of times. But he says, but if you're sitting there, and somebody says something, so depending on the situation, however it goes, okay? Somebody says something about the food put in front of you. They, they tell you it was offered to an idol. Hey, we, we don't, it just says anyone. So some people guess this is the host, this is another person. I think Paul just means anyone. So it could be the host, it could be uh, another saved person there with you, maybe your brother, sister of Christ, again, who's weak in their faith, says, oh, you know what? I saw where they got this from, this stuff of sacrifice to Zeus. Or maybe the unsaved person, sometimes the unsaved people, they know you're religious, like, you know, can you eat this? Is it okay? Uh, this was offered, you know, to Aphrodite. Is that all right? Can you eat this now, Paul? He says, if somebody says something to you that it was offered titles, do not eat it for the sake of the one who told you and for conscience sake, 
for the earth is the Lord's and all of its fullness. He says, look, then don't eat it. If somebody brings it up and they make a point that it was offered to an idol for the sake of those around you, maybe it's the weak brother in Christ who just said something to you. Maybe it's the unsaved person who's worried about how this is going to mix with your faith. He says, just don't eat it. For the same reason here, because the earth is the Lord's and all of its fullness, I believe he does that on purpose. The emphasis being the first one, the earth, literally everything in the world is God's. So it's cool to eat. But here the emphasis, it's the Lord's, which means everything I partake in in the earth still has to be done in a way that's with a recognition of his character. So if it's just food thrown in front of me, I can eat it. If it's food put in front of me that might hurt the people around me, it is no longer to mire their edification. And this is the Lord's food, so how can I use it in a way that will be harmful to people? It says the same thing. So now I have to recognize, hey, all right, I go to the unsafe house, I hang out with them, but I do it in a way that's still worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It doesn't stumble people that cares about others, that's going to still be salt and a light. Again, Jesus went into all types of people's homes, but he was always a light there. He never compromised. He was always what he was supposed to be in those scenarios. And Paul says, in that scenario, fine then, don't eat it. He says, verse 29, conscience, I say, not your own, but that of the other. For why is my liberty judged by another man's conscience? He says, I'm not saying this for your conscience. Your conscience can be clear. But for the people around you, if I partake with thanks, why am I evil spoken of for the food which I give thanks? So I think what he's saying is, okay, if I can eat it and be thankful, but if I'm thankful and I eat it, but I'm stumbling either my weak brother or the host who's looking at me like, I just told him that was sacrificed to Zeus, and now he's chomping it down like it didn't matter. He must not really believe in his God, or he kind of likes Zeus, or maybe he likes both. I don't know. Right? He said, I'm going to give some type of evil testimony here. I'm going to stumble that person. They're going to think my religion's fake or just like anybody else's. So Paul's laying out the scenario, basically saying, look, we're never on vacation from being salt and light in this world or a Christian. I'm not just saved with rights and going to heaven. I'm saved and called to be salt and light in this world. I'm supposed to be who Christ wants me to be. And that needs to be in literally everything in my life. And so he plays it out in this scenario here, which would be something that no doubt everybody in this church was going to face in the next week, probably. <laughs> They're all going to go to the grocery store. They're all going to have to buy food. They're all going to have unsafe friends. They're all going to have people over. Hospitality, even bigger kind of thing in their day and age than ours. More common in some ways. So this was immediately something they were going to have to put into practice and decide, you know what, Paul? Yeah, we see what you're saying here, or we don't. And so what Paul wants to do now is take this principle and bring it from the dinner table to the entire life. So he says, verse 31, maybe some of us are familiar with this verse, but the context can help. Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. 
I think for anybody who was thinking like, man, Paul, like this is a lot. This is just a dinner. There's a lot to think about here. It's kind of being kind of serious. Paul says, I'm not just talking about dinner. Whatever you do, you eat, you drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. I'm called to glorify God with my entire life. Now, sometimes that can seem maybe like hard for us. We, we see people who are, you know, David Livingston in Africa or Billy Graham or some Christian somewhere. We're like, okay, that person's kind of glorifying God with their entire life. How do I kind of do that? I'm not out there as a martyr dying for Christ. And, you know, God bless. That's good. <laughs> Most of us are not going to be called to die for Christ, but every single one of us are most certainly called to live for him. And the way I live involves my whole life. And what I do is I take everything that I basically used to do for myself and for selfish reasons and now do that for God and for his reasons. It doesn't actually mean I change my life that much. What might happen on a daily basis could actually be very similar. It's just the total shift in perspective and motive. I'm not eating just for me. I used to do this for myself to fill my belly and give me pleasure. Now, even when I eat, I do it for the Lord. And I recognize the Lord in my eating. And when I go to work, I don't just go to work for me. I don't just think about my reputation. I don't just think about my promotion. I don't just think about my day. I go to work and I think about what's God's glory, what's God's reputation, what's happening to the people around me. That's how I live for God's glory. What I began to do really well because it will relate to me and my house, I now do really well everywhere because it relates to God's house. And so it's not just about me and mine anymore. It becomes about him and his. And it becomes a growth in all of our lives in Christian walk. When I begin to go through the day and I don't just think about my day, I think about his day. And I don't just think about my reputation, I think about his reputation. And I don't just think about my plan, I think about his plan. And now I begin to live life to the glory of God. And not just... For myself. Now, unfortunately, that can seem almost unrealistic. I think we can read this verse and feel like it's almost unrealistic. Part of that is because the question has to go from being theoretical to personal, which is why I like Paul tying it to the dinner table here. It's not, do I glorify God, uh, you know, magically or randomly? Is that how that happens? What, what is even my desire there? Do I even think about glorifying God? The idea being, do I even really want my entire life to glorify God? That becomes a personal question, not a theoretical question. If I theoretically ask you, should your life glorify God? Every Christian is like, yes. That sounds good. I will be unspiritual if I say no. So I say yes. That's the correct answer. Now, if I say, do you personally want your entire life to glorify God? I think most of us, I'll just throw myself in there. I would at least say most of it, right? 
But there's kind of like these little parts here and there I don't think about too much. Or maybe literally I don't want to because I know what it's going to cost me. Or what's going to have to change. Or because that's just difficult. When it becomes personal, now it also becomes possible, though. When it's theoretical, yes, it's totally unrealistic. When it becomes personal, now, now it becomes very possible because it actually just touches real normal life things, like your relationship with somebody or what's happening at your job or the way you live your life. It goes from being general to specific. I'm not just thinking, okay, if I live a life and I don't do any really bad things and then I kick the bucket, I glorify God. I think that's kind of how people would generally explain it. But that's not really what Paul is saying here. Do I live by God for, for God's glory by just, again, not doing really big bad things and going to heaven? Or do I live to glorify God by every day doing the little things he puts in front of me to his glory. That's, that's actually how I do it. I don't do it generally. I do it specifically. Because the way I live for God's glory looks a little different than the way you live for God's glory. Because of where he has you. Because of who you are. Because of the relationships you have. Because of the gifts he's given you. Because of the opportunities that he's given you. It has to be specific. And when Paul wants to talk about it, again, I find it very interesting. He goes right down to the eating and drinking, to the table, to glorify God in all things. I think we could take it as a test case. I was thinking about this. What if we watched a man at his dinner table for a lifetime? Now, nobody actually likes anyone watching them eat. But let's just pretend. Okay. So what if we watched a person, a man, we won't give any names, and his dinner table for a lifetime? What would we see? We would see what he eats, not just on Instagram or Yelp photos of it. But in the sense, you would see whether there's care or prep or it's just kind of thoughtless junk thrown out there. There's a uh, pastor was staying somewhere, and he said there's a sign on the kitchen where the wife was preparing meals for them. It said, divine service is performed here three times daily. Say like that. She did a good job. right? We would see God's blessing, God's faithfulness, or too little and nothing in failure to provide. You, you think of some of the most amazing meals in the Bible. Elijah's sitting by a river, a little brook, and ravens bringing him food sitting at a widow's house, God just filling up oil and giving it to them, bread. We would see God's provision constantly. We would see moderation, or we would see excess. We would see blessing or opulence. What he eats would tell us something about that man. How he eats would tell us something about him whether there's self-control or gratitude or gluttony or addiction or pride, eating that relates to health or disorder. We see him eat with regard for others or just himself. We see patience, family consideration, 
giving of thanks to the Lord, or we'd see a selfish, hurried ingratitude toward others and the Lord. We see that from time to time, the man of God is not actually at the dinner table. His place is empty because he's fasting. He doesn't live by bread alone. We see who he eats with, family, spouse, friends, brothers, sisters in the Lord. We see if there's sweet fellowship, if there's peace there. Or we see a dinner table where they're angry, where that man is alone, or where there's a bunch of mockers and scoffers. We see him with an adulterous companion. Or we see sitting there just with the trash on TV and Netflix. What would we see as we watched him, who he's eating with? We'd see if his wife or his children are happy and respectful in his presence, or if they're fearful, sullen, eager to get away, maybe even never even with him, maybe happy never to return to that table when they can provide for their own. What would we see in who he eats with? We see the character of his friends the people he surrounds himself with, strangers, saved and unsaved, coming and going. We would see hospitality, whether it's given or only received. We would hear what's spoken, prayers of thanks, a simple godly life, fellowship in the gospel, loving, patient correction of little ones who need to finish their meal so you can get out and do something, joy and laughter, an unashamed witness for Christ. Or we'd hear pride, gossip, sharp tongues, sexual perversion, cursing, accusing, complaining, slander, all types of evil speech. You know, you can eat a couple meals with somebody and based off how they talk, you can learn a lot about that person. What would we hear at that man's table? You see, I think the man who glorifies God in his eating and drinking won't have a difficult time glorifying him anywhere else. I think if we watched a person at their dinner table for any amount of time, we could learn a whole lot about them. And I think that if you can glorify God there, you could probably glorify him just about anywhere else. And so I think when Paul wants to get to the principle, I don't think he's being unrealistic at all. I think he's being as realistic as you can possibly be. So he says, therefore, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That's what he's called us to do. Certainly, what of us begs a question. Maybe our dinner table can give us a little insight into where we actually are in that path. Maybe we need to change some things. No doubt Jesus Christ was the ultimate example of this. I mean, if you just watch him through the Gospels, what if we just sat at the dinner tables with Jesus Christ? What if we sat there at Cana of Galilee with him? What if we were in Peter's house when he raised his mother-in-law up of that fever and then she served them all a meal? What if we were there at Mary and Martha's? Part one, where Martha gets corrected. Part two, where they're all blessed. 
and Mary comes and breaks that alabaster box? What if we were there at Simon's house where he just totally disrespects him, but Jesus is still there talking to him, loving him? What if we were there at Matthew's house and Zacchaeus's house and saw him sitting there with all those tax collectors? What if we were there on the night he was giving the first communion? Or what about the resurrection breakfast on the beach where Jesus is cooking fish for his disciples and asks Peter if he loves him? What if we were at those meals with Jesus Christ? I think we'd learn quite a bit about who he was. Tell us a whole lot. He's a great example of those things, I think, for us. So Paul, I don't think, is going too far at all. I think he's just hitting right at the real life that we're supposed to live. So he says, 32, Give no offense either to Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God. Don't, don't do things that aren't edifying, whether it's the Jews, whether it's the Greeks, whether it's the other believers in Jesus Christ. Again, the context here is important. Remember, he's talking about neutral things or things that we have liberties or rights in. He's not talking about the central things of the faith. Obviously, Paul offended a large number of people in his lifetime. And that's because he never backed down on the gospel. Okay? He's not saying, give no offense. He was saying, the gospel is an offense. I have embraced the offense of the cross. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. He knew the gospel was an offense. Our message is sometimes an offense. The truth we present is sometimes an offense. But the life we live doesn't have to be an offense. So he says, you don't have to give an offense in these things. Not in relation to the things he's talking about, to the eating and to the drinking. Just, verse 33, as I also please all men in all things, seeking not my own profit, but the profit of many, notice here, that they may be saved. Paul says, look, this was my aim. And they saw this. I didn't come in trying to please myself. That's the central thing again. Paul was displaced. Paul was not central. Paul was not claiming his own rights and liberties. Paul was there as a servant of Jesus Christ. I didn't show up in a city to please myself. I didn't sit down at a meal to please myself. That doesn't mean Paul had no pleasure. It just means he was not first in all of these scenarios. And unfortunately, this is where we get in trouble. There's always issues when self gets promoted, but self thinks it can be promoted if it has its rights and justifications. I'm allowed to eat this. This idol isn't anything. Nothing's going to happen to us in this situation. Paul is saying, listen, follow my example here. He's pleading with them. They had seen this in his life. I seek to please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many that they may be saved. I'm not trying to get rich off you. I'm not trying to get something for you. I'm not here to receive from you. He was there to give. He was there to bless. Again, Jesus Christ, the ultimate picture of those things. He didn't come 
to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. And anybody that begins to walk a mature life in Christ, this is where it takes us. We follow his path. I don't show up all the time as me being the central thing that I'm trying to fulfill. I'm there for others and for the Lord. Even a simple church service, Lord, I'm here to worship you and try to be a blessing to the other people that are there. At a simple dinner table, every dinner table I go to, I can sit there and say, Lord, I want to thank you and be a blessing to the other people who are there. And I can glorify you in that way. I'm not there just trying to please myself. So he says, imitate me. Really, verse 1 of chapter 11 should tie in with this section. Just as I also imitate Christ. Certainly, Paul could not say that if he had not been that type of example to people. This should be a challenge for us. We should be able to say this type of thing. To have people look at our lives and give that type of exhortation. But Paul even says, there's always a limit to it. You can imitate him as he imitates Christ. And wherever Paul stops imitating Christ, then you stop imitating. <laughs> that's, that's true for all of us. Because at some point, we're all going to fall short. Even the most mature believers can be mature examples of Christ in a lot of ways. And then in some ways, we all falter. We all fall short somewhere. And eventually... All eyes, again, need to always be on Jesus Christ. He gives us one another to help one another, and that's wonderful. But Paul learned this other's first mentality from Jesus. Again, in Romans 15, he would say, We then who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, leading to edification. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Paul saying, I didn't make this stuff up. I'm not this super spiritual guy who's teaching you this path. I'm just following Jesus. This is what Jesus did. This is what I saw Jesus do at the dinner table. This is how we can do it in Corinth. Imitate me as I'm imitating him. That's what I'm asking of you guys. You ask me about idols and things sacrificed to him. This is where we get to. Christ, again, becomes our example. And I think for us, again, that, that should be the aim. We're never, we're never going to be perfect, but we should have at least the right goal. I should have the right aim in life. And... To act like, well, I'm not really a person who should be able to say this. That's not what is put in front of us here. We should all be imitators of Christ. So we should all be able to say the same thing. This should be true of each of us in a real manner. Because that's who we're all following. He's our Savior. And this is what we're trying to do, just like Paul did. And we should be able to say the same to others. So he's going to pause there and shift into some of the other arguments 
but we do not have time to get into that right now. So let's stand. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do thank you for your graciousness toward us. You know, Lord, we can't do any of these things without you, and we freely admit that. But Lord, we do want to be true imitators of you. And Lord, I pray that you would make it truly our heart's goal to glorify you in all things, whatever we're doing, even eating or drinking, that they wouldn't just be words or theoretical, but they'd be a true desire that you've placed in our heart through your Holy Spirit. And we pray, Lord Jesus, that you would be glorified in this place, even now, Lord, as we worship you. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.